And before I get into that, I, uh, if you didn't know this, I went to college in Asheville, and our senior year, we were feeling super macho, and we decided to, <laughs> someone laughed, that's funny, thanks for that. Um, and we, someone said there was a waterfall in Brevard called Turtleback Falls. Anybody ever been there? Really beautiful. I mean, it's this huge waterfall. You, you literally slide off of it into this big pool of water. And so we're 21, 22 years old. We're like, yeah, let's do it, you know. So this is 2001, y'all. We don't have cell phones yet. So how do we get there? We went to a website called MapQuest. And you print the directions and you read it. And it tells you how to get there. So we drove to this waterfall, and it's beautiful. We're all amped up. And so in order to get to the waterfall, you have to... Well, before you get to the waterfall, there, of course, there are warning signs, right? You've seen these waterfalls. It, basically, they say, someone else has been stupid here. Don't be like them. You know, warning, you're on, you're on risk. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we're fine. You know, we're, we're invincible. So in order to get to this waterfall, you have to cross like a little river... And then you would climb up a rock face with a rope and then walk across to get to the waterfall, right? So some of my friends go across the river, I get down, I step into the river, and I step into a hole. And I lean forward and I, to catch myself, and I just cut my hand terribly. I won't go into details, but it was bad, okay? And I'm like, well, I'm already in here, I might as well keep going. So I go across the river, and I'm going up the rope, and I'm bleeding, like, it's like, oh, you know? This is a great Father's Day moment, isn't it? And then... I walk over to the waterfall, I slide off, get into the water, and my friend's like, dude, you're like Rambo, you're bleeding all over the rope, and it looks so cool, and I was like, take me to the hospital right now. <laughs> Multiple stitches in one finger just to get there. You know, it got me thinking, remember that song by TLC, 1995, Don't Go Chasing Waterfalls? Remember that song? <laughs> Please stick to the rivers and the lakes that you're used to. Um, what is it about, I'm showing my age here, <laughs> what is it about uh, we're never content with staying in the boundaries as human beings. We want to push the boundary just a little bit. We don't want to stick to the rivers and lakes that we know. We want to go, we'll ignore the warning sign. Yeah, 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 I'll be fine. I'm not going to get hurt. And of course I got hurt. What is it about the human condition that makes us no, we know what we ought to do. That's the grace of God at work in our lives, helping us know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. Why is that there? Why do we feel that way? You know, there's a reason the warning signs are where they are. You know, did you know on the box of Pop-Tarts, there's more than one instruction? You would think there'd be one step to a Pop-Tart. There's actually two. Number one, remove Pop-Tart from the wrapper. Step two, cook the Pop-Tart. Now, um, this implies the warning is there because somebody somewhere cooked the Pop-Tart with the wrapper on it. So the people at Kellogg's, who make a delicious product, by the way, uh, said, we have to put it in writing so we don't get legally in trouble or whatever. There's two steps. You know, every warning sign effectively says, someone else has already done it, so don't do it. Like, it, when you're a little kid and someone says to you, don't touch that, don't push that button, don't eat that piece of chocolate, what is your in instinctual thought? I want to do that. That sounds like a great idea. Don't hit your sister, you know, or whatever. Uh, wh why? Why do we have that inclination? What is that first thought? 
We are prone to do what we know we are not supposed to do. Now, sometimes the, def- the, word, of, the word called sin, which the church has used for millennia, that's really what it is. We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. We see, we know there's a perfect um, mark on a bullseye, but we tend to deviate from it. We just can't quite get it right. Now, why is that? The Bible says that human beings in the very, very beginning weren't like that. We didn't die. We were immortal. And we didn't know what sin was. We didn't know what the difference of right and wrong. We just knew right. We just knew perfect stasis and peace with God. And in Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam and Eve a warning sign. It says, The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful, that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's important to know, it's not just one tree in Genesis 2 and 3. It's two trees. Now, Adam and Eve can eat from anything in the garden they want. It's, it's a bounty we probably can't even imagine yet until we get in heaven one day or something. But in the middle of the tree, there's two trees, tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Of course, the good and evil tree is what gets us in trouble. Now, interestingly, in Revelation 22, the tree of life also appears. So we have a tree of life at the beginning of the Bible. We have a tree of life at the, at the end of the Bible that the apostle John sees. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, Christ. It flowed down the center of the main street. Heaven is a real place. It is tangible, okay? There are streets and people and trees and animals. I think there are definitely animals in heaven. (laughs) Chocolate cake. I'm sure chocolate cake exists in heaven. It has to. But there's a street. And on either side of the street, there is a river flowing. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit. I would say it's probably representative of the 12 tribes of Israel, with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine, to heal the nations. Heaven's a place of healing. See, I think when people go to heaven, there still needs to be healing done. People still need to be delivered and healed. Death does not solve all those problems. There still needs to be continued healing for souls that get there. But anyway, it's a tree of life, a tree to heal the nations. And God's warning sign is if you go over this guardrail of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You don't even know what that means yet but don't do it. Uh, You will physically stop being animated. You will not be alive anymore. So don't touch that tree. And then in Genesis chapter, we'll continue in Genesis 2, the Lord God paced the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely the fruit of every tree in the garden, every tree you want, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So God effectively warns the man first, don't take of this, don't eat it. And I have to ask this question when I think about Genesis, and many people have asked this, and you probably thought this too. Why is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil even there? Wouldn't that have solved a lot of problems in the human race if we never even had to deal with that? Why even put it there? Why not just have the tree of healing, the tree of life, right? Problem solved, everybody's good. Here's why. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil had to be there. If it was not, we would be automatons. We would be robots. We would not have free will. We would not have the ability to choose. So God being good, God being love, had to put the tree of knowledge of good and evil there so that we would have volition. We would have agency. So that we would be effectively alive, right? 
So that's why the tree had to be there, because without choice, there is no love. And in Genesis 3, we pick up uh, this part of the story. Now, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. And God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame. This was new in their vocabulary, shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, the Hebrew, this is verse 8, we don't know really what this means, okay? This is the best we can do with English. Um, we're not quite sure what this phrase means. So when the e- cool evening breezes were blowing, you see that in all the English translations, we don't really know what the Hebrew says there. That's the best we can do. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So because this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is present, the devil, Satan, the serpent, sees an opportunity. He sees now these new creatures have the ability to choose. This was not an option before. Now that they have the ability to choose, I'm going to capitalize on that. I'm going to weasel in and try and get them to choose wrongly because now they can do that. Up to this point, hasn't been an option. So Satan tempts them with what they should not do, and they lose paradise. Have you noticed this? The devil will never tempt you with what you should do, right? He'll never go, you know what? You should go to church today. You should be nice to your family members. You should give to charity. That'll show him. Like, he doesn't do that. It's always something you should not do. Let me speak about temptation for a minute because it's the temptation, what's the follow-through in the temptation of Genesis 3 that got us in the predicament that we're in. I'm going to talk about temptation just for a second. God does not tempt anyone. I'll make that clear. All temptation originally or comes from the enemy. That is who temptation comes from. Because many times you don't, you don't generate the temptation, do you? It just comes to you. And God doesn't tempt anybody. So clearly it comes from the enemy. It's in the scripture. And secondly, to be tempted is not sin. And when you are tempted with something, don't feel ashamed by it. The enemy wants you to feel ashamed, but you shouldn't. There's nothing wrong with being tempted. It's not sin. Jesus was tempted, right? But he didn't sin. It's the action on the temptation that could be a problem. But to feel that is nothing wrong. There's nothing uncommon to man of temptation that's given to us. And whatever you're tempted to do, do the opposite thing. Because that is not what the enemy wants you to do. Temptation is less about what's being offered and so much more about what you will lose. I'll say that again. It's about not what's being offered. It's not about the fruit. It's about what you're going to lose. And he wants you to lose again and again. He's playing the long game. 
And he wants us to think on the short term, right? The temptation will give you an, a, a, a little sugar jolt. It'll give you a little high for a little while. Sin's fun. That's why you do it. But it doesn't satisfy. Look through the immediacy of the temptation and realize what the real aim is. It is to destroy you. It is to destroy your family. It's to destroy your marriage. It's to cloud the vision of your own future that God has for you. He wants to take you away from going somewhere with God and get you to deviate on a side path of shame and guilt and brokenness. Every time you're tempted, the devil knows God's probably about to do something in your life. And he wants to deviate you from that path so that you don't get there. That's why he sees. See, we, we tend to think like the devil's a guy with a pitchfork and horns and all that. These are cosmic beings. We are terrestrial. We don't see the scope of our lives. These spiritual beings, they can see the scope of people's lives. They know your inner, they can know our thoughts. They know um, the, a lot more about ourselves than, they, than we think they do. And they will prey on those, those uh, weaknesses that we have. And because, like Adam and Eve, we bear the image of God, the Imago Dei, we walk in that. We're created with that. Yes, it's flawed because of the fall and sin, but we still are created in the image of God to this very day. The devil and his demons hate that about people because they don't have that. And so, of course, the enemy is opposed to everything that God loves, and he wants to tear down everything that God cares for, and people being maybe the, the most important thing that God cares about on the earth. Now, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve, if you notice, he says a lot of true things, doesn't he? He says, oh, that's true. Your eyes will be opened. You'll know the difference of good and evil. But then he mixes in a little lie, doesn't he? Just a little bit. You're not going to die, right? So sometimes temptation comes. It's got a lot of truth in it, but it's just enough lie in it that it might get through your defenses. I had a friend of mine who was an evangelist friend of mine, and he always used this illustration. He said, imagine if I baked you a plate of brownies, like perfect, with a crispy top and chocolate chips in it and moist. And I'm making some of you hungry. Are you there? And I cut you a slice of that brownie and I served it to you. And right when you picked it up, and right as you're about to put it in your mouth, I said to you, wait, there's just a little bit of poop in it. <laughs> but you're not going to taste it. It's just a little bit. It's just a pinch of poop. Would you still eat it? Now, some people would. It's people in North Carolina. We go, oh, yeah, five-second rule. It's good. No. See, sometimes he'll come at us with all the sounds good, but there's just enough filth in it to, to, to be disgusting, to destroy you, to tear you down. There's, there's a kernel of truth in what he's saying, but, you know, Martin Luther famously said that when the birds of temptation come flying around your head, don't let them make a nest in your hair. And it's true. To, there's things we can do in our lives to move away from temptation. It doesn't have to be that way. I mean, like the scripture that says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, right? I think we need to step more into the, into the promises of God. Like, we're not here to be defeated all day. I mean, Jesus has paid the price for you to be a new creation. That we can move away from temptation. Why else would Jesus say to us in the, to, in the Lord's Prayer, 
you know, keep us from temptation, deliver us from evil. Because he's implying that you can, right? Their temptation will come, sure, but you don't have to be a slave to it. You know, uh, last week I went to, for the first time in my life, I went to a jail. I've never been inside of a jail. And I went with Stan Groves and David Adams. They've been doing jail ministry here for a long time. And I highly recommend you get involved with it. I had, I mean, I've seen movies and TV shows, right, of jails and stuff like that my whole life. And then you go into it and the doors are locking and unlocking and the elevator is going on its own and, you know, all that. You're like, okay, this is getting real. <laughs> I'm going in a cell block here. And we go in and have a Bible study with these guys. And they were great. I mean, they're, clearly they're in there for a reason, but they're, they, they're people. <laughs> they're just people. And now clearly some of these guys are in there, uh, at least on the floor we were on, probably like drugs and, and infractions like that. So some of them had addictions that they were, you know, struggling with. And, and I gave them this analogy. I said, imagine you're in a sailboat and uh, your temptation or whatever it is, is like here. It's not attached to you, but it's in the water. And imagine you're in a sailboat and every time you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church, you do the right thing. You, you're orienting the sail of your life to the spirit of God. And when you turn toward God in faith, he's going to fill that sail, right? He's going to push you a little further away from that thing. Until one day, you'll turn around and look at the horizon, and the thing that you thought was so important is like a speck. And the Lord has moved you further and further away from it, Within the knocking on the door becomes less frequent. As the days go by, but it takes a daily choice to say yes to God and no to whatever it is that's floating right by your boat. Because Genesis 2 and 3, we think the serpent spoke back then. He's still speaking today, right? He never stopped. He's still at work. First Peter says he's like a roaring lion. He wants to sow into our uh, re- rebellious nature and capitalize on it, leverage it, take advantage of it. That old cliche, the, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. So when you go back to Adam and Eve, some, some churches spend way too much time on this. They are always asking, who's, who, who's to blame? It's Eve's fault. She took the fruit. She gave it to her stupid husband, and he ate it. I mean, who cares? Who cares? We're all guilty. I mean, Romans 3, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is casting blame in heaven. If you think about it, casting blame is actually a sign of sin itself, isn't it? It's part of the sinful condition. It's your fault. Division, hatred, fighting, you know? It doesn't matter. Eve offered it. Adam took it. Adam was warned first, remember? He took it. If anything, Eve debates the serpent, doesn't she? She at least says, well, the Lord told us not to take it. She knows what God said. Eve was trying to be obedient. Adam just stood there like an aloof husband. He's like, oh, yes, dear. Okay. You know? No, in Romans chapter 5, when Paul writes about this, he spends, Romans 5 is all about Adam, actually. And he makes the contrast of Adam with the contrast of Jesus. And that, yes, sin came through one man, but righteousness can come through another. And I'll just read a section of it. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, 
many, all, became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So we have to look at, really, if you talk about temptation, then what, what do you do? I would say look at Jesus' temptation as answers to some of that. Because obviously it's through him that we're made righteous, that we can be new creations in Christ. If you look at a tale of two temptations to juxtapose the, the, the temptation of Adam and Eve with the temptation of the, in, in, in Jesus in the wilderness, to look at those two side by side. Jesus went where we could never return in order to accomplish what we proved unable to manage, which is triumphing over evil. In other words, Jesus, even though he's God, he didn't just wink and make evil disappear. He could have, but he chose to be tempted as we are as humans, and he did not sin, though. That's incarnation, right? God in flesh, God with us. He became flesh. He became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus walked into the bowels of evil and temptation and death. If you read the Apostles' Creed, he descended into the place of the dead. Our translation says descended into Hades, which means the place of the dead. He, it means he fully died. Jesus fully came into death and he conquered sin and it started there in the wilderness. He plumbed the depths of the worst of us. He didn't just cover evil, but he dismantled it and broke it apart. And now he holds the chains to death and hell and Hades and life and death. Essentially, Jesus decisively recaptured ground that Adam and Eve had surrendered. Yes? Yes. Because it is only in God that evil can be made good. And there's many things in this world that Satan intends for evil every day. And God repeatedly uses them for his glory. Think about Jesus on the cross. They thought, oh, we got him. He's dead. We're going to crucify him. It's over. They were probably celebrating. And then God took what looked like ultimate defeat and turned it into the greatest victory the world has ever known. Because we need Jesus' example and his sacrifice because as sinners, we cannot make ourselves good. You cannot make yourself righteous. You cannot make yourself holy. We are unable to do that. But the good news is the grace of God is present to make us new creations in Christ. C.S. Lewis famously said, you can't make people good by law or by legislation, as important as those things might be. It will never cure the, the willful disobedience and rebellion of the sinful human heart. But see, that's why Jesus came, didn't he? God didn't want to leave people in that place. He came to save us from our sin and to set us free. He came for the sons of Adam and Eve and the daughters of Adam and Eve, knowing that he was the only cure for this human condition. It was all to undo the fall. And we're going to sing a song that's called Here's My Heart. And your heart... It's the center and seat and source of who you are. It's separate and distinct from your soul or your spirit. Your heart is what makes you you. It's utterly unique in all the universe. 
There is not another you that has ever been or ever will be. And God cherishes your heart above all other things. The Proverbs say, guard your heart, for from it is the wellspring of life. And many times, though, because of sin and damage and abuse and the past and other people and painful stuff, our hearts get damaged and they get wounded, and we need the grace of God and the work of Jesus in our lives to restore and heal us. And I don't know about you, but when we were singing those songs earlier, I just felt the Holy Spirit here in a way, in a very palpable, present way, that he was here to heal somebody or somebody's today. So I'm going to say a prayer, and I invite you to sing the song, to come forward and pray. I'll be over here to pray with you if you need that. I would love to lay hands on you, so let's pray. God, indeed, here, here are our hearts. At the end of the day, when our lives are over and all the story is finished, Lord, all we can offer you is our, is our hearts, not our stuff, not our jobs, as important as those things might be. God, all we ultimately can give you is be a living sacrifice, giving up to you all that we are. We thank you, God, that you want our hearts. You want to heal your hearts, Jesus. You always heal those that come and ask for healing. You never turn anybody away. And whatever it is, God, Lord, that you're probing today, that maybe someone's feeling inside of themselves, I pray that you would do a magnificent work of healing on their hearts. To restore that image of God damaged by the fall. God, thank you that our story is not death. Our story doesn't end there. But Jesus, you have made a way where there's no way. So Holy Spirit, move in our hearts. Touch us and restore and redeem us, oh God. For you are good and your promises endure 